Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about Acts chapters 1 through 5. But before we get into the book of Acts, let's talk about the very end of John chapter 21. If you remember last time, we talked about the miracle of Jesus's resurrection and how he rose again on the third day. Really, to me, that is the highlight of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is going to say that that is the linchpin of our faith in Christ, his resurrection. Now, in the book of Acts, we're going to talk about how Jesus will stay with his apostles for 40 days after his resurrection. We don't get a lot of coverage of that in the book of Acts, but it is discussed. At the end of the book of John, back in the Gospels, you may remember that Peter isn't quite sure what to do next, and he goes fishing. Then Jesus comes to Peter and asks him to go and feed his sheep. Remember, he asks him that three times. After this conversation, something really interesting happens. We read that Jesus foretells of Peter's future martyrdom in a manner similar to his own, and according to Christian tradition, later in his life, after giving so much of his life to build Christianity, Peter will be crucified in Rome. That's according to Christian tradition. Also, in this conversation that Jesus has with Peter, we have this reference to the apostle that Jesus loved. We think that's John. We have John expressing a desire to never die, to live preaching the gospel until the Savior comes again. And in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we talk about John's desire to never die as John being translated. And there even are some interesting stories in church history of John being referred to as being still alive. We have in the history of the church, Joseph Smith talking about the Apostle John ministering to the Ten Lost Tribes. And so that's something that's pretty rare. This isn't something you read about every day. We have a few examples of individuals having this experience, but it certainly is not common. Look what it says. In verse 18 of John 21, we read, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when you were young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This he spake, signifying by what death he, meaning Peter, should glorify God. And then there's this shift, because Peter is asking the question, okay, well, what about the disciple whom Jesus loved? And we're assuming that is John. And so the discussion picks up in verse 21. Now, kind of the pattern here, in 3 Nephi 28, after Jesus spent all this time in the Americas with his disciples, as he leaves, he says in 3 Nephi 28, verse 1, he gathers his disciples one by one and said unto them, what is it that ye desire of me after that I am gone to the Father? Now, if that's what he did in America, then isn't it safe to assume that that's what he did with his disciples in Jerusalem? He gathered them one by one and said, what is it that ye desire of me after I have gone unto the Father? And this is where section 7 picks it up. Now, it's fascinating that as soon as Joseph Smith gains possession of the Urim and Thummim, he must have had this question. He must have been asking a thousand times throughout his life, what really happened to John? 
And as soon as Joseph gets a Urim and Thummim, that seems to be one of the questions. What happened to John? So section 7 is the answer to that, and it begins with the Lord saying unto John, John, my beloved, what desirest thou? It doesn't necessarily say that he asked that of his disciples, but I think Peter went first. And Peter must have said something about, Lord, I want to live a good life, and then I want to come into thee in thy kingdom. There's a hint of that in verse 4, when Jesus says to Peter, thou desirest that thou might speedily come unto me in my kingdom. So Peter must have gone first. And then John went and expressed the desire to live until the second coming, that he could bring souls. And I wonder if Peter heard that and said, I didn't know we could wish for that. What does that mean? And Peter began to ask a whole bunch of questions, and that's what got written up in that last part of the book of John, is what's going to happen to this guy? And it was just a fragment of that whole conversation, and you really do need to turn to section 7 and maybe even 3 Nephi 28 to kind of get your bearings and understand more clearly all that probably went on with that conversation. I like that. I like how you tie that into desires. We don't have that discussion where he says, okay, Peter, what do you want? That discussion is not in John. But if you take 3 Nephi 28 and section 7 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the revelations of the restoration really do add depth to the Gospels. And I think that is an important thing. And I think you could have a really good discussion with your family or in a Gospel setting. He asks each of us, what is it that you really want? And I really think if we can answer that question, if we can really analyze ourselves and our motives, understanding that question helps us understand us. And it also helps us understand who the Savior is. And at the end of the day, Peter and John both want something that's really good. I think that's the main thing that we need to look at. But we just wanted to make sure that we covered this story because it really is something else. I mean, the idea that John is translated and doesn't die It's something that is worth a short discussion. So now let's jump back into the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 5. Now we call it the book of Acts, but the real and proper title is the Acts of the Apostles. In other words, this book is how apostles act. Yeah. The book of Acts, we think, is really Luke part 2. You see, Luke is continuing his narrative discussing Jesus and his apostles after the resurrection. That's what we're going to see here in the book of Acts. Uh, We think that Luke is writing this because of verse 1 of chapter 1 of Acts, where it says, "...the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach." Remember, that's how Luke starts his narrative, talking to Theophilus, which may be a person, but it also may be a code word. Theophilus is just the combination of a couple words in Greek, God and love. So we have the lover of God. Theophilus loves God. And I think all of us would say, well, we love God too. So what if Theophilus just means that Luke is writing to all those that love God? So in a lot of scholarship, they refer to the book of Acts as Luke part two. In other words, we have the gospel of Luke, and then we read the book of Acts, and it's kind of like carrying over what Luke was writing about uh, earlier. Now, typically in scholarship, they say that the author of Luke slash Acts asserts that he was an eyewitness to some of the things that were going on, but also that he has uh, secondhand sources, that he's coming and he's hearing what was said or what was done, and he's writing this stuff down. 
So big picture, what we see here is the author is writing this as a historical narrative, oftentimes being present when these events are occurring. And another idea is that the author of Luke is a traveling companion with Paul. And Luke is referred to as a physician in Colossians chapter 4. Along these lines, the evidence indicates that the author of Acts and the author of Luke was educated, that they were somebody who spoke and read Greek, they had access to firsthand information, and that they were a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul with a medical background. That's kind of the idea of who wrote it in brief. So as an overview of the book of Acts, it is one of the longest books in the New Testament, and it has just over a thousand verses as compared to about 1,100 verses in Luke and about 1,000 in Matthew. It's a pretty big text, and it highlights God's plan of salvation and how Heavenly Father established this new era that resulted from Jesus's ministry and his death and his resurrection. And it kind of delves into the idea of the question that the apostles have in the first chapter, which is, okay, now what? Now that the atonement has happened, now that the resurrection is here, what are we supposed to do? And it also tries to explain how this new movement of followers of Jesus is coming out of Judaism, because we have to remember the first century of Christianity, these early people that believe in Jesus are coming out of Judaism. And then it's with Paul, and then later we'll also read that Peter does this, but really Paul is kind of the guy that's going to show us this, that he's going to take this gospel message to people outside of Judaism. So really, the theme in Acts starts with this extension and realization of Judaism developing its own structure, turning into this new thing called the church. Uh, And they're going to be called in Antioch for the first time Christians. We're going to read about that in a couple weeks. That's not going to pop up until we get to Acts chapter 11. But from the beginnings of the book of Acts, they're literally called those on the hodos, or those in the hodos, which is a Greek word, which just means the way. So the earliest name that we have in the book of Acts for these people that follow Jesus are those that are in the way, or those that are on the way. Now think of the pun. It already is just a preloaded dad joke. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're Roman, they're in the way. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you love Jesus and you're one of them, you're in the way. You're on the straight and narrow path. So I love the pun, and I don't know if it was intentional, but I think it's great. And also kind of uh, helps us see Lehi's vision better, right? Because what are they doing? They're on the way. They're on the path towards the tree of life. Okay, so when was the book written? That's another question people ask. And most scholars agree that it was written sometime between 70 and 90 AD, with some suggesting a date in the 60s or later. So kind of in that first century era, there's going to be some references to some events that are historically happening during the first century that really help us pinpoint when some of these things occur. And we think that the purpose of the book of Acts is to establish a consistent legal precedent to support the early Christian movement. You see, in Acts, every Roman court declares Christians innocent. And some scholars have proposed that Luke wrote it as a court brief on Paul's behalf to defend the Apostle Paul. Some people look at it this way. However, Acts is a narrative rather than a list of precedents. So what is the book of Acts? It's telling us the story 
of the early Christian movement, but it's also trying to write a story that helps the Christians to defend themselves in the court of public opinion. So I think one of the things the book of Acts is trying to do for us is trying to model for us how to follow Jesus. And one of the ways is we have to articulate why we believe what we believe. We have to defend what we believe, and we have to do it in a way that is consistent, but also logical to outsiders. So that's one of the reasons why Bryce and I started this podcast is there's so many voices out there. And Bryce and I said, you know what, let's go through the Come Follow Me text. Let's lend our support to do this home-centered, gospel-based learning initiative and just contribute and do it in a way that's faith-promoting, but also logical and consistent and something that's understandable. And that's kind of how I read the book of Acts. Now, Acts is going to be the rest of the history. The history of the New Testament kind of is Acts. Everything else are epistles. And now, chapter 1, we transition from the ministry of Christ to really the ministry of Peter. And it starts with 40 days. Jesus kind of transitions for 40 days. He's with them on and off. And then after the 40 days, they watch him ascend up into heaven. And it's kind of funny As they watch him ascending up, there's two angels standing there who basically say, okay, guys, now get to work. And so they go back to Jerusalem, and the first item of business is to fill the vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, created by Judas Iscariot's suicide. So that's what they do in chapter 1. Now, Acts chapter 1 doesn't give us a lot of information about Jesus' 40-day ministry. We have this statement that he shows himself alive after his pathane, that's translated as passion. Uh, another good way to read this is his feeling or his deep suffering. It comes from the Greek word, which just means suffering, essentially. And then it says, by many infallible proofs. That phrase literally can be read as, in many sure signs or tokens. So I believe in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, is enough information for us to understand that he is teaching them about the endowment. Now, as we talk about some of Paul's letters and some of the things that he discusses, Paul will often talk about putting on Christ or putting on the new man or putting on the armor of light. And that word for put on is in duo. And that means to put on sacred vestments, which is an important aspect of the endowment. And so I believe Paul understands this. I believe it's written in the text with enough information for those that have eyes to see to see it. And I believe that this is going on in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. From my reading of Dr. Nibley, he says basically the same thing. He says, listen, Jesus is teaching his disciples things that are not to be written and not to be disseminated openly, esoteric teachings in Christianity that were not publicly taught. I think that is what Jesus is teaching during the 40-day ministry. Think about it. Jesus is with them for 40 days after he's resurrected. And we get basically just a couple verses in the book of Acts. That's it. A couple verses. What's going on? And so I think what's going on is Jesus is giving them information that is not to be publicly disseminated. Another pattern is Joseph gathers the Quorum of the Twelve in the winter before his death and lays out every key, every doctrine, every teaching that he's received in an upper room to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I think Jesus is gathering his disciples and laying upon them every key, every doctrine, And that most likely would include sacred temple ordinances before he leaves and then hands the ministry over to them. 
Yeah. When we get to Nauvoo, we get very few published revelations, but there's a lot of teaching going on in Nauvoo. Yeah. And so... There's a lot of temple ordinances beginning. Yeah. I, re- I really think the parallel fits. Yep. Now in chapter 2, about 10 days after that, so it's been about 50 days since Passover, it's when they celebrate Pentecost. And they're all gathered, and people from all over are there in Jerusalem, and then Peter takes advantage of that opportunity to begin his ministry, to begin to preach as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, as the leader of the church on earth. He gives a tremendous sermon to the people gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Yeah. Now... The day of Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. Remember, Jesus is crucified on or around Passover. He spends 40 days with the apostles. Then he ascends back to his Father in heaven. And then after his ascension, Peter is at the temple on the day of Pentecost, and people from all over have come to Jerusalem, speaking all different manner of languages. These, I believe, are Jews that are fulfilling their religious obligation to come to the temple. And in the context of all these people from all these different places that have the Jewish faith, Peter teaches them according to their own language. We read in verse 11 that Cretes and Arabians hear them speak in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. And people are amazed at the apostles' ability to teach. And with this, the apostles testify of Christ, his death, and his resurrection, and many people are invited to come to the waters of baptism and are baptized that day. In fact, the text tells us that 3,000 souls are gladly added to the members of the church of Jesus Christ on this day, and they continue to break bread and to share their possessions according to everyone's need. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 45. Now, in Acts chapter 3, we're still in Jerusalem. We're still talking about Peter. And in this place, at the Gate Beautiful, Peter and John heal a lame man who has been lame since birth. And this man praises Jesus. And the awe that kind of follows that gives Peter a marvelous opportunity to begin to teach of the Savior. And so he teaches that day at the temple, kind of a believing group. These are faithful people who've come to the temple to worship. And so he teaches them of the Savior and his role in our lives. Now we begin to see Peter growing in that role of leader of the church. First in Pentecost, now at the temple. And that's going to transition into chapter 4, because now he's going to go and face the Sanhedrin the Pharisees who put Jesus to death. They are not happy that Peter continues to preach. So in chapter 4, he's arrested and brought before the council. Word spreads throughout Jerusalem of Peter and John and the miracles that are happening in and around Jerusalem. And so in Acts chapter 4, they are summoned before the religious governing body in Jerusalem, and they basically ask this question, what are we going to do about these guys? Verse 17, they say, let us straightly threaten them that they speak no more about this man named Jesus. And so John and Peter basically say, we cannot but speak of the things that we have both seen and heard. And now we get to see Peter preaching to the very people who not very long ago 
he was nervous and denied knowing Jesus. That's kind of that same similar group. But now in his role of leader of the church, Peter rises up with confidence and with power, and he speaks to them boldly and says, you crucified the Messiah. Yeah. Now, the rest of Acts chapter 4 talks about how the saints are trying to live the law of consecration. And the law of consecration is also something that the Lord has encouraged the saints in our dispensation to live. In the early church, they were encouraged to live it, and today, Latter-day Saints covenant to God to consecrate their time and talents and whatever the Lord has blessed them with to building up the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 5, there's a couple individuals named Ananias and Sapphira, and they consecrate, but only in part. And so Acts chapter 5 kind of discusses what happens to them. In the midst of that, Peter and John are going to be arrested, and then they're going to be taken to prison. And Acts chapter 5 relates that an angel will deliver them from prison, and so they will come out and then testify of Christ again, even after they've been delivered from prison. And then there's this discussion amongst the leaders of the Sanhedrin. And there's one individual in Acts chapter 5, verse 34, his name is Gamaliel, he is a Pharisee, and essentially his argument is going to be this. Listen, if these people talking about Jesus, if this is just a a message that doesn't hold any water, meaning the message is false, this individual named Jesus, this person is nothing, this message is not true, if that's the case, then this movement will come to nothing. On the other hand, if what Peter is teaching is true and Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God, you guys, you're not going to be able to stop it. So either way, Gamaliel's message to them is essentially, I think you guys need to chill, because either way, it's either of God or it isn't, and if it's of God, you can't stop it, and if it isn't... You don't need to. Yeah. If it's of men, it will come to naught. You don't need to do anything. It'll just fizzle out. But if it's of God... You better leave it alone because you can't stop it. Now, that's a brilliant little insight from Gamaliel, but they don't really listen to him, and they just keep coming after Peter and John, and that's the contention that Peter's going to face in these chapters. Okay, so now that we've given a brief overview of the book of Acts, and specifically these first five chapters, let's talk about some ways that we can see relevance here in the book of Acts. And so... We're going to go back through those five chapters again in a little bit more detail, and we're going to talk about how we can use the text to not only apply it to our lives and see how we can live a better life, but also we're going to try and see ways to discern the difference between true and false messengers. This book is about how apostles act. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and he was answering the questions about the second coming and the signs of the second coming? He talked about the fact that he was concerned that in the latter days that even the very elect would be fooled by an imitation. One of the great questions of all of our lives is, are you following true disciples of Christ? Are you following his representatives? Or have you been fooled into an imitation? Every one of us has to answer that question, and we have to get that right if we're going to follow it all the way to Christ and into his kingdoms. Do you recognize true representatives of Christ when you see them? This book is called The Acts of the Apostles. 
So three lists today from me. How do apostles act so that we can learn to recognize true representatives of God? And then, number two, how do disciples act? How do you and I, who are trying to follow their leadership and come to Christ, how do we act? There's going to be some great things on that list. But then to see the opposite is also beneficial. So our third list is going to be how do non-disciples act? Now think about the transition here. This is the transition from the leadership of Jesus to the leadership of his apostles, And the question remains, how do you recognize a true apostle sent from God? So let's just walk through chapter one, and this is a beautiful little list, and I'd encourage you not to take it too far, not to push it too far, because apostles are human beings with frailties and imperfections, but they are representatives of God. So I love the very first. My first item on the list comes from the very first verse. It's really speaking of Jesus, but it makes sense in my head that if anyone is a true follower of Jesus, they will also do this. Luke writes in verse 1, "'The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach.'" I find so much meaning in not only those two words, but in the order of those words. Jesus first did, and then he taught. And true disciples, true apostles, true representatives of Christ have long since lived before they are called upon to teach. Their lives bear testimony of their assignment. Now, again, that doesn't mean they're perfect. You have to allow them to be human beings. I love this quotation from Neil A. Maxwell. It applies to apostles as well as just great saints from the past. He said, we must be careful not to canonize these models as we have some pioneers and past church leaders, not to dry all the human sweat off of them, not to put ceaseless smiles on their faces when they really struggled and experienced agony. Real people who believe and prevail are ultimately more faith-promoting and impressive than saccharine saints with tinsel traits. End quote. But it is my witness to all of you that you can find a true follower and leader of Christ by the life they lived. Remember how the Pharisees were constantly criticized. They say, but don't do. Apostles of Christ do, and then they teach. Second on my list is the very second verse. Until the day which he was taken up, after that, that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. You can distinguish a true leader of Christ by the witness of the Holy Ghost. He will manifest to you as they speak that they are true disciples. They speak through the Holy Ghost. And that ultimately is the test of knowing who is of God and who is not. I love when the two on the road to Emmaus, after they had talked to Jesus for so long, said, did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke? And I think for me, that's one of the great manifestations that I'm listening to an apostle of Christ. I recognize that they are speaking with the power and the authority of the Holy Ghost. 
Now, number three, I'm going to be very careful with. I don't think this should be pushed too long, and I don't think it should become a club or a tool of judgment, but I do want to mention it. Number three, verse three, to whom he shewed himself alive after his passion. Now, chapter one is the replacement for Judas Iscariot. We have to replace Judas. And Peter kind of stands up and says, we need to replace Judas. So first 16, men and brethren, this scripture must needs be fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake concerning Judas. So verse seven, he was numbered among us, but he has now fallen. Now we need to find a replacement. Verse 21, Wherefore of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained, ready? And I think this is a powerful description of a capital A apostle. Must one be ordained to be a witness of his resurrection? We are led by witnesses of his resurrection. Now, allow me to tenderly and reverently share what Boyd K. Packer, one year after he was ordained as an apostle, shared in General Conference. I'm going to read from the April 1971 General Conference, Elder Packer's talk called The Spirit Beareth Record. I'm going to jump around. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Elder Packer said, It was one year ago today in a solemn assembly that we had the privilege of raising our hands to sustain the authorities of the church, much as we have done this morning. It was on that April morning that I heard my name read as one presented for your sustaining vote as a member of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. Jumping forward. Occasionally, during the past year, I have been asked a question. Usually it comes as a curious, almost an idle question about the qualifications to stand as a witness for Christ. The question they ask is, quote, have you seen him? End quote. That is a question I have never asked of another. I have not asked that question of my brethren in the quorum, thinking that it would be so sacred and so personal that one would have to have some special inspiration, indeed some authorization even to ask it. Jumping forward. Can't the apostles say more? How like the sacred experience in the temple becomes our personal testimony. It is sacred. And when we are wont to put it into words... The apostles declare it in the same phrases with the little primary or Sunday school youngsters. I know that God lives, and I know that Jesus is the Christ. Jumping forward, I said there was a question that could not be taken lightly nor answered at all without the prompting of the Spirit. I have not asked that question of others, but I have heard them answer it, but not when they were asked. They have answered it under the promptings of the Spirit on sacred occasions when the Spirit beareth record. I have heard one of my brethren declare, I know from experiences too sacred to relate that Jesus is the Christ. I have heard another testify, I know that God lives. I know that the Lord lives. And more than that, 
I know the Lord. It was not their words that held the meaning or the power. It was the Spirit. Now listen to his conclusion, jumping forward. Now I wonder with you why one such as I should be called to the holy apostleship. There are so many qualifications that I lack. There is so much in my effort to serve that is wanting. As I have pondered on it, I have come to only one single thing, one qualification in which there may be cause, and that is, I have that witness. And he italicized the word that. I declare to you that I know that Jesus is the Christ. I know that he lives. He was born in the meridian of time. He taught his gospel, was tried and crucified, rose the third day. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. He has a body of flesh and bone. Of this I bear testimony. I am one of his witnesses. I hope you heard what he did say and what he didn't say. Now, occasionally, as you search the scriptures and as you search their words, you will find some very powerful declarations. For example, perhaps the most powerful of them all is Joseph Smith's declaration in the Doctrine and Covenants, where he makes it clear. Now, after the many testimonies which we have given of him, this is the testimony, last of all, which we give of him, that he lives. For we saw him even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. Occasionally, you'll find it in their writings. I love this one from President Russell Nelson, our current prophet. At the press conference to announce his first presidency, he declared, I declare my devotion to God, our eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. I know them, love them, and pledge to serve them and you with every remaining breath of my life. Now, I want to go back to Acts chapter 1 and take those statements I am not the one to declare who has and who hasn't, but it is stated in verse 3, to whom he showed himself. And then when they chose the new apostle to replace Judas, they wanted one to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Before we leave Acts chapter 1, verse 3, I just want to mention that word pathane, which is translated as passion. That word passion is probably not a common word that we use as Latter-day Saints, but if you've heard of the film, The Passion of the Christ, or if you've ever heard that term used, and here it is in the scriptures, that word pathane is coming from Pasco, which essentially means suffering or to feel. And so I think probably a better translation in a Latter-day Saint context would be after his atonement, after his suffering on the cross, he showed himself. Now, probably a better translation from he showed himself alive is he literally stood next to them being alive. I think that's probably a better translation. Um, think about this, this idea of coming into Heavenly Father's presence and the Savior standing next to you. He himself living, standing next to you after his pathing or after his suffering 
And he does this in many infallible proofs as it reads in the English, or another way to read this is through many tokens or signs. I like that, Mike. Let's go back to verse 3. At the end of verse 3, it now has number 4 on our list. How do you recognize a true apostle? End of verse 3, it says, they speak of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, meaning they don't necessarily say what we want to hear. Paul will talk later on, and we'll get to this in his epistles, about itching ears, about people who say what they know we want to hear. For example, there's this fascinating rebuke from Samuel the Lamanite in the Book of Mormon where he says in Helaman 13, 27, For behold, if a man shall come among you and shall say, Do this, and there is no iniquity, and do that, and ye shall not suffer, and he will say, Walk after the pride of your own heart, yea, walk after the pride of your eyes, and do whatsoever your heart desireth. If a man shall come among you and say this, ye will receive him and say that he is a prophet. In other words, he's not a prophet if he says what I want to hear. He's a prophet if he speaks of the kingdom and tells me what I need to hear. And sometimes that can be painful. Do you remember in Moses when Enoch first becomes a prophet He sees things not visible to the natural eye. Now, some people say, a seer hath the Lord risen up. But other people, Moses chapter 6, verse 37, all men were offended because of him. Verse 38, they would say things like, there is a strange thing in the land. A wild man hath come among us. For me, one of the telltale signs of a true apostle of Christ, is they will lead me to the kingdom and to Christ, not necessarily say the things that are easy and pleasant and enjoyable to hear. Do you remember how they reacted to Abinadi? They didn't like what he was saying, and because they didn't like it, they burned him. But in the end, if they had followed Abinadi, they would have saved their lives. Everything that Abinadi prophesied came to pass. He was there to save them, but they didn't like what he was saying because he was rebuking them and telling them to repent. So I think one of the telltale signs is they are not afraid to speak of the kingdom. I would list that as number four on my list. Number five, verse four, being assembled together. And I would combine that with verse 14, also in Acts chapter 1. These all continued with one accord. There is a requirement placed upon the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency that I don't believe is placed on any other body in the church. I certainly haven't seen it. I don't even know if it would be possible to place it on any other body. But in section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 27, it puts a challenge on the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. It says, every decision made by either of these quorums must be by the unanimous voice of the same. 
That is, every member in each quorum must be agreed to its decisions in order to make their decisions of the same power and validity one with another. That is a pretty tough standard. And that requires the Lord's apostles to come together, to discuss, to reason, to talk, and then to be united. They are one. They are one with each other. They are one in accord. I believe they are required to live up to the standard placed upon the school of the prophets in section 88. You know why you're turning to section 88, Bryce? Not to be a contrarian, but in the next couple verses, the Lord does say, hey, you can, if you can all agree, there can be a majority. That's verse 28. But then he says, if this is the case, their decisions are not entitled to the same blessings, which the decisions of a quorum of three presidents were anciently who ordained. In essence, he's basically saying, if you're not unified, you're not going to have the same power. But he does kind of allow for that wiggle room. So I like that idea of there's space for us, in the words of Elder Maxwell, to have sweat and grit, like we're human beings. And so I'm always trying to see both sides and I see that and I go, I'm not in those meetings, so I have no idea, but I like that the Lord gives space there. And that's why I think we don't push it too far. I understand their desire and their requirement to be united, but I'm not going to push that too far. To me, it's a sign of the apostleship. And I love to watch the brotherhood and the love for each other that exists in the Quorum of the Twelve a complete respect for each other. Again, back in 88, in the school of the prophets, when they gathered and they went there to be instructed, this is how you saluted your brother. Verse 133 of 88, art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant in which covenant I receive you to fellowship in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchanging to be your friend and brother through the grace of God in the bonds of love and to walk in all the commandments of God blameless in thanksgiving forever and ever. I love that. I'm sure they have lively discussions, and I'm sure they disagree. But when they are together and make a decision— It is a telltale sign of the Lord's disciples, that unity. Let's add one more on our list of true apostles, but it comes in the context we need to address. So let's just set this list aside, because in verse 6, they ask Jesus, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? That was an intriguing question. Now, we'll get to his answer in a minute, but let's talk briefly about kind of that context in which they're coming from and what they were really asking and what he was answering. So here you are. You're with the apostles. Jesus is resurrected, and they have him. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, we read, "...and being assembled together with them..." commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now that's going to come up at the day of Pentecost, which we're going to talk about in a second. So he's got them here, and according to Luke's narrative, we're staying in Jerusalem, and so they ask the golden question. They say, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And his answer, 
It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That verse, verse 8, could be read as an outline for the whole book of Acts. We start in Jerusalem, we move throughout Judea and Samaria, and then eventually when we get to Paul, he's taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, or at least the Roman Empire as they understood it. And so he doesn't answer their question. Their question is, are you going to come and build the kingdom? Are we going to have a king on a throne, a unified Israel? Is this going to happen? And really, it's a natural question for them to ask because he had been talking about the kingdom all through the Gospels. And the references of the outpouring of the Spirit in the Old Testament were actually given in the context of Israel's restoration. We see this in Isaiah 32 and 44. We see it in Ezekiel 36 and 37. We see it in Joel chapters 2, starting about verse 28 and going into the third chapter. Now that is a lot of stuff. That's a lot of text to read. So we put that in the show notes and you can go and read those on your own, but just know and understand that the outpouring of the Holy Ghost the way it was prophesied in the scriptures that the apostles had, remember the New Testament hasn't been written yet, the scriptures they had told them that the outpouring of the Spirit was in context of Israel's restoration. I'm just going to read one here just to kind of give you an idea of what their expectation was. So go to Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and we read this. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also the servants and the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And then a list of signs. I'm going to show you these cosmic signs. And then we read in verse 32, it reads, It shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord had said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Next chapter, verse 1. In those days, and again in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and I will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered and parted my land. In essence, what he's saying is, I'm going to gather my people and I'm going to plead for them or I'm going to defend them, I'm going to protect them, and the captive daughter of Zion will return and I'm going to raise them out of the places where they were scattered. I mean, you got to kind of read the rest of Joel chapter 3. But the expectation of the kingdom was a big deal. And a lot of times it's called the messianic expectation, the idea that Jesus was the Messiah and the true king. And my take on this, when they're standing there with him, they're looking at the resurrected Lord, and they're like, let's do this. And his answer go preach the gospel message. And I think what he's trying to say, it doesn't say this here, but I'm kind of reading between the lines. I'm here to preach a kingdom and redeem you from a different enemy. And that enemy is sin and death. But there certainly is evidence that they were taught that this isn't the time, this isn't the place, this isn't the day in which you're thinking. Because in Acts chapter 3, Peter, in responding to some of the criticism, talks about the times of refreshing. That's Acts chapter 3, 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come. 
And then in 20, he talks about Jesus Christ being preached unto you, 21, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. Peter was saying, there's going to come a time of the restitution of all things. And Paul will write to the Thessalonians and say, no, it's not going to happen. The second coming is not going to happen until after a falling away, until after an apostasy. But there was clearly that desire. Is this it? Are we now going to restore the kingdom? Is Israel going to have a king? And are you going to reign on the throne? And are we going to be an independent nation? You know, Bryce, I wouldn't be surprised if during the 40-day ministry, he explains some of these things so their understanding changes. I don't know, I wasn't there, and we don't have the 40-day teaching. But I think one of the things he's doing here is he's giving them the endowment, he's teaching them the temple, he's showing them how to ascend, he's showing them the mysteries of the kingdom, and a lot of this stuff is in extra-biblical literature, and I believe that by the time he's done speaking with them for 40 days, they get it, and they're not even worried about building a political kingdom. They're changing the world spiritually, and they're going out and they're establishing these churches, and the language that they're using, at least in the Greek as I read it, is drenched in temple imagery and those kinds of things. Now, sometimes it holds in the King James, and sometimes we lose it. And so as we go through some of the writings of Paul, we'll point some of these out as we go to show you what I like to call the breadcrumbs of the 40-day ministry of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is resurrected. He's with the apostles for 40 days, and we get basically just a couple verses in the book of Acts. That's it. A couple verses. Now, back to the question, are you going to establish the kingdom? I love what he says, and this applies to all of us, but then I'm going to add it to my list of how to recognize an apostle. There are some questions we're just not capable of answering. And so he says in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. I hear him say that to me all the time. I ask questions, and I have curiosities, and I hear the Savior say, Bryce, It is not for you to know all things that the Father hath put in his power. Then verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and you shall be a witness unto me both in Jerusalem and then all the nations. In other words, okay, Bryce, there's lots of things that you don't have the power to understand. But what you receive the power to understand bear testimony of those things. I love the word power here. Verse 7, there's things in the Father's power. And then verse 8, there's things that are in my power. Let's not stress out over things that are in the Father's power. He will take care of those things. Let's focus on the things that are in my power and to be a witness of those things wherever we go. Let's add that to our list, that they are to be witnesses of God. Now, I just need to point out, if 10 people saw a crime but are unwilling to say anything about what they saw, how many witnesses are there of the crime? I think the answer would be zero. 10 people saw the crime, but you don't have any witnesses. A witness 
is one who has the courage to stand up and declare boldly what they have seen and what they know is true. I want to walk you through the next several chapters and just point out how powerfully and how often they do that. Jump to Acts chapter 2. All of these will be in Acts, but just jump to Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. Do you see them fulfill that command? Acts chapter 3, verse 15. And you killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised up from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. We are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Acts chapter 10. There's several here in this chapter. Let's read one in verse 39. Acts 10, verse 39. We are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. And then two verses later in verse 41. Not to all the people but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And then one more, chapter 13, verse 30, and then verse 31. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. I believe that we are led by a quorum of the Twelve Apostles and a First Presidency who are willing to stand up and be bold and to testify of the things that they have seen and know to be true. So there's my list of how to recognize an apostle. Before we leave Acts chapter 1, just know that they're in the upper room in verses 12 through 26. And notice when they're in this upper room, in verse 15, we read that there's about 120 of Jesus's followers, or his disciples, as we read. And that's not a huge group. I mean, think about the world today, where we live in this world where people say, well, how many followers do you have on your Instagram? And I always like to come back with, well, Jesus only had 120, and I guarantee Herod had more than that. But does that make Herod better than Jesus? You know, it's kind of as a joke. But essentially, it starts really small. Now, by the end of this podcast, we'll see thousands come into the faith, but it really starts small. And that number, 120, is kind of fun. You see, according to Jewish tradition, 120 elders passed the law in the time of Ezra. And the Dead Sea Scrolls required one priest for every 10 men. So 120 may be the number of people a team of 12 leaders could best accommodate. I mean, that's just some of the tradition that's swirling around at this time. But the idea is we don't have a massive following, at least here in the very beginning in the book of Acts. Now, in this chapter also, they talk about the death of Judas. 
And there's a couple different traditions. One is in Acts and one is in Matthew 27. And according to Matthew 27, Judas hangs himself while Peter stated that Judas fell, quote, headlong, burst open in the middle, and all his intestines spilled out. Now, Joseph Smith and the JST is going to reconcile those accounts. We read this in the JST. He went and hanged himself on a tree, and straightway he fell down, and his bowels gushed out, and he died. That's in the Joseph Smith translation. So this addition in the JST kind of works to harmonize these two, what I would say would be apparently contradictory accounts in the story of the death of Judas. It seems to harmonize this. And so after they discuss the death of Judas, then we get his replacement. The main thing that I see in the end of chapter one is that whoever's going to replace him has to be a witness, and notice what it says in verse 22. Someone who was there from the beginning, beginning at the baptism of John, all the way down to where it talks about who was with us when we witnessed of his resurrection. So the two names they have, verse 23, are Joseph and Matthias. It ends up that the lot falls upon Matthias, and he is the one that is replacing Judas in the body of these 12 apostles. And then we go into chapter 2, where we read about the day of Pentecost, Those that study the Hebrew Bible will find that Pentecost was one of the Jewish feast days, but the Jews don't call it Pentecost. That's the Greek name, Tain Chemeran Tes Pentecostes. The Jews call it the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot. The day of Pentecost was therefore known as the day of first fruits. That's Numbers 28. We need to remember that in ancient Israel, Their festivals revolved around the seasons, specifically with the grain harvest or the relationship of God and the earth, and they remembered God during these festivals, and many of them were associated with the harvest. And so specifically, the wheat harvest in the land of Israel was a big deal. And so this harvest, which took place over seven weeks, was a time of joy and celebration in ancient times. So the harvest season began with the reaping of the barley during Passover, and it concluded with the wheat harvest during Shavuot. Therefore, Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, marked the end of the grain harvest festival, much as the eighth day of Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, signaled the end of the fruit harvest in the fall. So I live in Utah, and we get peaches in the fall. So the fruit kind of comes up in the fall, but the grain comes up earlier in the year. And so Shavuot marked the end of the grain harvest. So we just need to remember that the harvest season begins with the reaping of the barley, and 50 days later, we have what the New Testament is going to call Pentecost. And that represents the conclusion of the wheat harvest. So one image we can see here, at least in Acts as I see it, is the bringing forth of the wheat that is ripe. I mean, those of you that have read the Doctrine and Covenants, you already know where I'm going with this. The field is white, all ready to harvest. The field that has wheat in it is white, meaning it's time to pull it in. And so we're going to have a harvest of souls. Now, the Feast of Weeks, from a Jewish perspective, is very symbolic. It could represent the giving of the Torah. You see, this holiday marks the giving of the Torah to Moses on Sinai. Now, the text isn't going to say this, but it's going to say this 
in Jewish tradition. So it does kind of represent the culmination of Israel's journey out of Egypt to becoming a new nation with a unique relationship with God. If you remember Exodus chapter 19, where the Lord says, I'm going to make you my special treasure. And so the giving of the Torah traditionally is seen as 50 days after the Passover. Well, when was the Passover? That was when the lamb died to free us to get out of Egypt. 50 days later, we get the Torah. So some people see this, at least in Christian history, as Passover represents Jesus's death, 50 days later, we're in this new special relationship. And what's the law? What's the Torah for people that follow Jesus? It's following the Spirit or the Holy Ghost. Or as Jesus says to the Nephites, I want you to give me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now, that word contrite comes from the Latin, which basically means to crush. Like, I want your, your pride to be crushed. To me, to come to Jesus, my heart is broken, my pride is crushed. I listen to the spirit. Or if we read King Benjamin's speech where he's like, listen, yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. So that 50-day marker could represent that idea. And it also, as we talked about, represents the harvest season in ancient Israel. So we're harvesting souls. It could also represent a renewal or a rededication. And so reading this with a Christian lens, I'm renewing my covenant by listening to the Spirit. And then finally, in Jewish tradition, this could be seen as a symbol of unity. One of the ways we can read this is, all Jews were present at Sinai when the Torah was given, regardless of their differences. And so the idea in the Feast of Weeks is that this is a celebration of our unity and our common heritage that binds everyone together. I think we have festivals like this, at least in my country of the United States of America. Like we all come from different backgrounds and we all have different perhaps political beliefs. But on the 4th of July, we come together as Americans to say, hey, we are one nation under God. And so in that sense, the Feast of Weeks could represent that in Judaism as a symbol of unity. And so I really like that. All those things to me kind of work. Big picture, um, it's called Pentecost in the English reading here, but the Jews didn't call it that. They called it the Feast of Weeks. But all this means is that it's a holiday representing the bringing in of the wheat 50 days after Passover. And Passover was right about the time when the barley comes in, and Pentecost was the time when the wheat came in. Now, here's why it's significant to me, because now we transition from focusing on the apostles in chapter 1, because chapter 2 now focuses on the followers the typical disciple, the one who hears and follows. Notice verse 2, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Verse 3, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were filled. So now all of a sudden we're beginning to see the people So allow me to begin our next list. Our list is how to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. And I think there's some powerful things on this list. Number one is verse four, Acts chapter two, verse four. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. They seek the Holy Ghost. They want the Holy Ghost. They yearn for the Holy Ghost. I think that ought to be number one. You become a disciple of Christ if you seek to be led by his Spirit. Now, Peter stands up and says quite a bit. I want to talk about their response to a prophet speaking. I want to jump down to verse 37. 
Peter said something that pricked them in their heart. Now, what does a disciple do when they've been pricked in their heart? When they're called to repentance, when something really stings or even stirs them? What does a disciple do when a conference talk is given in which you are called to repent? Notice verse 37, when they were pricked in their heart, they ask, what shall we do? In other words, they seek to change. Let me show you a contrast to that because I'm going to begin my list of how to not be a disciple. I don't want to confuse you, but I'm going to run these parallel lists. And so don't worry about writing them down. We'll put them in our show notes so you can see both of my lists side by side. But I do want to add a contrast to a disciple of Christ who gets pricked in his heart and changes, gets pricked and says, what do I need to do? How do I need to get better? Now, in Acts chapter 5, the non-disciple is going to be cut to the heart. Notice that contrast? Verse 33 of Acts 5, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart. And interesting, going back to chapter 4, verse 16, they're going to say the same question that the disciples asked, but they're going to add a couple words. Notice in verse 16, what shall we do? Now, that's a good question. When a prophet speaks and stirs me up, I want to know, how do I change? What do I do? That's the disciple's reaction. But here's the non-disciple in verse 16 of Acts 4. It says, what shall we do to these men? Do you see the difference? How do we take out the messenger so I don't have to hear the message? When a prophet speaks, do you say to yourself, what do I need to do to get better? Or do you want to take out the prophet? Are you cut to the heart? So let's get back to their reaction to Peter's message. First, they're pricked in their heart, and they say, what shall we do? Peter answers, verse 38, repent and be baptized. Disciples look at repentance as a daily, constant activity. Repentance defines us. I love that during President Nelson's spiritual momentum talk, one of his how to gain spiritual momentums, the second one on his list was discover the joy of daily repentance. That's how you have spiritual momentum. And that really is the sign of a disciple. Disciples repent and make covenants. Peter then continues in verse 40 as something else that disciples need to do. With many other words, he did testify and exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And we could spend an hour here. We could spend days here that disciples have to depart from the world. We have to be courageous and stand up and say, I'm not going to follow the crowd. Nephi talked about a broad path coming off the straight and narrow. Broad because everyone follows it. Are you one that's going to follow the crowd even off the straight and narrow, or are you going to save yourself from this untoward generation and not be afraid to be different from the crowd? And then verse 41, after Peter speaks, notice the, the attitude of a disciple 
they gladly received his word. Even what pricked them in their heart, even the call to repent and change, they gladly received his word. And that day, verse 41, how many joined them? We go from 120 in the upper room to 3,000 souls that joined them on the day of Pentecost. The number of disciples is growing. The next several verses have some wonderful descriptions about how they're now going to live their lives. Verse 42, a disciple continues steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Verse 44 adds that they had all things in common. Now, that has reference to living the law of consecration. I'm going to continue that discussion when we get to chapter 4. Let's not address it right now. I would like to jump to 46. They continued daily with one accord in the temple. And again, we could spend so much time on that. I think we could emphasize the daily and the one accord. We saw a unity exist among the Quorum of the Twelve, and we now begin to see a unity exist among the disciples. One of the signs of discipleship of Christ is a desire to unite with others. Also in verse 46, they break bread from house to house and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. I wonder if what it's really saying here is that they feast upon spiritual meat more than feasting on any other meat. The togetherness, the being with each other, the talking about the doctrine, that was their bread more than any other bread. So now let's continue in chapter 3. There's this beautiful little exchange between Peter and John and a lame man. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour, so about 3 p.m. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. And he was asking alms. And when he saw Peter and John, he asked them alms. Now watch what Peter does. Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. He gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. But what did he receive? Verse 6, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. Now I read that so many ways. One way I read it is... What I really have is not silver and gold. I want to give you something far more valuable than that. And that's the attitude of a disciple. And that's what they give him. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him up by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he's healed. Now watch Peter. Peter just healed him. But in verse 12, Peter says, When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? And why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? Do you see the attitude of a disciple? 
Everything I do is because God gave me the ability to do it. I am not the great one here. Now, how many times over the years have we talked about that simple concept that disciples of Christ see God as great and themselves as not? The non-disciple will reverse that. The non-disciple will see themselves as great and God is not. But I love the language there. As though by our own power or holiness, we made this man to walk. So a disciple gives a really good talk in church. What's the attitude? As though by my brilliance, I said those words. It's not us. It's him. Yeah. Okay, before we leave Acts chapter 3, there's part of what Peter's talking about that could be a little bit confusing. If you look at verse 19, we read, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. Now, I think those phrases, the times of refreshing and the times of restitution of all things can be a little bit confusing. These statements are pretty much comprehensive. They seem to include all that would be done to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth to prepare the way for the second coming of the Messiah. For this podcast, I think that's big picture what's going on. I don't know if in the setting that you're in, if you're teaching, if you want to get into those specifics, just know that we put that in the show notes and we give you some really good quotes to consider. And then towards the end of the chapter, if you go to Acts chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, we read this quotation from Deuteronomy. It reads as follows. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. There are a lot of parallels between Moses and Jesus. We've talked about these in the podcast and scholars have written about this extensively. However, the fundamental point behind Peter's citation of Deuteronomy 18 doesn't, in my mind, seem to point to Jesus's earthly ministry, but rather is anticipating his second coming. And then if we read this with the Book of Mormon as a lens, whenever this passage is invoked, consistently it pertains to Christ's second coming. You can read this quoted in 1 Nephi 22, verse 19 and 20, and 3 Nephi 20, verses 22 and 23. Therefore, I think it's pretty reasonable to say that these passages probably relate to Christ's second coming and not his mortal ministry. Now, all that being said, I think you can apply it to his mortal ministry if we look at this spiritually, meaning if I don't listen to Jesus, then I am cut off from the presence of God's people. And in essence, that's really what Peter's trying to do. He's here at the temple, and he's trying to build this bridge between two schools of thought. One is Judaism, as they understood it in its first century context, and he's trying to build a bridge between that worldview and the worldview of the early followers of Jesus, those that were, quote, in the way, those following the way, or as they'll be called in Antioch, the Christians. And he's trying to build this bridge, and the way he's doing it is he's showing 
the listeners that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament verses. And if we look to Jesus and we listen to his witness, Peter, as an apostle, the chief apostle, will lead these listeners into a space where they will be among God's people, where they will see Jesus for who he is, and they will have life and salvation. Okay, now we're going to go into Acts chapter 4. Yep. And this is now where we get the opposition. This is where the Sadducees in verse 1 of chapter 4 came upon them. Now watch the reaction of the non-disciple of Christ. Verse 2 has a very common one, being grieved. Do you remember how the disciple received his word with joy? And now we find that the non-disciple is grieved at the teachings. And then verse 9 kind of hints at another one. Notice that Peter says to them, if we this day be examined of the good deed. Do you remember how many times in the Gospels that the Pharisees and the Sadducees watched Jesus to see if he would do something that they could accuse him? They're watching. They're deliberately looking for something that I can blow up and blow out of proportion that I can destroy you with. They're looking for you to fall. If we this day be examined of the good deed done, they want to find fault. Now, verse 10 is Peter's response. Here's a group of people who are grieved and angry, and they're looking for a fault. And yet, notice verse 10. This goes back to our list of the disciples. Peter. Now, this is the same Peter who denied knowing Christ. But boy, some change has come over him. Maybe that's a testimony of the gift of the Holy Ghost that he didn't have during the Savior's ministry, but now has. Peter stands up in this setting and says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Think about that. Peter, surrounded by enemies, opposition, could have felt forebodings and fear and discouragement. It's kind of like us surrounded by problems, could very much see that we're outnumbered. But he chose to stand up and say, Jesus is the Christ and you crucified. He chose boldness and courage in light of opposition. President Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church, said, One of the highest qualities of all true leadership is a high standard of courage. When we speak of courage and leadership, we are using terms that stand for the quality of life by which men determine consciously the proper course to pursue and stand with fidelity to their convictions. There has never been a time in the church when its leaders were not required to be courageous. Not alone courageous in the sense that they were able to meet physical dangers, but also in the sense that they were steadfast and true to a clear and upright conviction. Leaders of the church, then, should be men and women not easily discouraged, not without hope, and not given to forebodings of all sorts of evils to come. Above all things, the leaders of the people should never disseminate a spirit of gloom in the hearts of the people. 
if men and women standing in high places sometimes feel the weight and anxiety of momentous times, they should be all the firmer and all the more resolute in those convictions which come from a God-fearing conscience and pure lives. Men and women in their private lives should feel the necessity of extending encouragement to the people by their own hopeful and cheerful intercourse with them, as they do by their utterances in public places. It is a matter of the greatest imports that the people be educated to appreciate and cultivate the bright side of life, rather than to permit its darkness and shadows to hover over them. Men and women, then, who are called to leadership should be alarmed at the possession of a disposition filled with forebodings and misgivings and doubts and constant wonderments. That's why I love that moment where, surrounded by the enemy, Peter stands up and says, Be it known unto you. And unto all Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Powerful moment. Yeah. The situation here in Acts chapter 4 is... Peter and John are arrested because they're teaching at the temple. And we read in verse 1 that the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And we read in verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in the hold until the next day. And so sometimes people ask the question, okay, you know, what is the captain of the temple? The Sadducees controlled the temple hierarchy and most of the resident priesthood during this time period. And so the captain of the temple guard was a local police force that the Romans permitted. They allowed this, and it was made up of Levites, and they were controlled by the Sadducees because the Sadducees had political authority here on the Temple Mount. And according to tradition, the person who was, quote, the captain of the temple was a Sadducean aristocrat, somebody of high rank and great power. And this individual was given authority to arrest Peter and John, and he had authority given to him by Rome. So what happens? Well, we read that they're taken to Annas the high priest. Now, if you remember from the Gospels, Annas is not the high priest, it's Caiaphas. And my assumption is that Luke knows this, but this term was also used loosely for any of the officials in the high priestly household. And so the idea that he was the high priest, I think, doesn't have any merit. I think it's Caiaphas, but just know that they're kind of using that term loosely. At least many people read it that way. So in this verse, in Acts chapter 4, verse 6, we read that John and Peter are brought not only before Caiaphas and Annas, but it also says, all those who were kindred of the high priest. So we're talking about some really powerful people, and Peter is going to stand before them and testify of Jesus. And he's essentially going to say, there's salvation in no other name. He's kind of, in my opinion, quoting some stuff coming out of Joel chapter 2, but I also really like the way King Benjamin lays this out. If you read in Mosiah 3 and Mosiah 4, there's some really interesting passages where King Benjamin says stuff like, there's no other name given nor any other way or means whereby salvation cometh, only in and through the name of Christ the Lord omnipotent. 
the statement that Peter makes is this. He says, first of all, before he makes his statement, we read in verse 8 that Peter is filled with the Holy Ghost, but then we read this statement where he says in verse 10, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. You remember, they healed that man who was the beggar in the third chapter. And so then Peter says, this is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He's referring to Jesus, and he's calling him, in one sense, the chief cornerstone, or this idea in engineering that that cornerstone is the first stone you lay, and all the stones are referential to that stone. And then he says, neither is salvation in any other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. I love what it says in verse 14, beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. So my reading of verse 14 is, they knew who this beggar was, and he's standing with the apostles. And so even though they're these apostles are considered unlearned. These highfalutin Sadducees can't say anything. And in the culture of the day, if you were in a situation where you were having a verbal exchange with someone and you were disagreeing on points and they couldn't respond, the way they looked at this in the first century was you won the debate. You won the argument and you made your point. I think today we would say, mic drop. I'm just going to drop the mic and walk off because I won. And so then the rest of the chapter is they're asking themselves, okay, what are we going to do to these guys? The solution they come up with is this. Let's just threaten them. Hey, you can't speak in the name of Jesus, and then we're going to turn you loose. Now, I want to go back to what Peter said to them in verse 11. I think this is our next on our list of the non-disciple. Peter says, this is the stone which was set at naught. The non-disciple sets at naught important and sacred things. I want to read from 1 Nephi chapter 19, starting in verse 7, he says, For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and the soul, others set at naught and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him at naught. And hearken not to the voice of his counsel. Jumping to verse 9. And the world, because of their iniquity, shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Therefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. And they smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it. Because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. The non-disciple will take something significant, something valuable, something like temple and scripture and Holy Ghost, something that could bless and sanctify and help and make you happy, and they will set it at naught. Now, let me at the same time contrast that with the disciple, and I'm actually going to call Gamaliel, the Jew, a disciple because he caught something. In chapter 5, we're going to get to his response. They come to Gamaliel and saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with Peter and John? How do we silence them? And Gamaliel's going to stand up. Let me read in verse 34. Acts chapter 5, 34. Then stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. Why? 
He said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For behold, these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. It's a very different phrase. They were brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, and he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men, let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of man, it will come to naught. In other words, the disciple of Christ can recognize things that other people set at naught that are valuable and things that other people value that will come to naught. The disciple isn't fooled by things that come to naught and things that other people set at naught. For example, Do you remember back in your teenage years, your friends were so important. They were the world to you. And your family, your little brother, your little sister, probably not so much. In other words, you were caught up in something that eventually came to naught. Now, I'm not saying friendship is important. I'm not in any way. But the recognition that today... I spend very little time with my high school buddies that dominated my life back in high school. But guess who I spend a lot of time with? My sister, my little brother, my parents. And I'll admit, I set them at naught and overinflated something that came to naught. I hate to tell you, but that beloved car that you drive, those wonderful possessions that we own, every one of them will come to naught. But there are very important things we must not set at naught. Now, back in chapter 4, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. According to the non-disciples' attitude, knowledge comes from going to the right schools and the right places and having read the right books. That's what makes you knowledgeable. These people were ignorant. Peter and John were ignorant because they hadn't done that. But now on the disciples' list, what made Peter and John brilliant? End of verse 13. They had been with Jesus. The disciple recognizes that the greatest learning of all, the greatest truths come from Jesus. And I will respect the learning that comes from the institutions of the world, but the greatest learning comes from being with Jesus. The non-disciple gives that no credit whatsoever. Peter and John are ignorant and unlearned. And so verse 17, another list on the non-disciple, they threatened them. 
the non-disciple is both threatened and threatens. And then I love verse 19, one of my absolute favorite lines. Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That's the disciple. Now, as a side note, when does following Jesus allow for us to speak truth to power, to swim upstream, to go against the grain, to even, as these guys are doing, break the law of the land? And so I'm not going to settle it here, but we put some commentary in there for you in the show notes, because I think big picture today, and we're going to read this later in some of the narratives of the epistles, big picture is that Christianity's message is we're going to hearken to the people that are in governmental power or secular power. And so we even have this in our Articles of Faith. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, magistrates, and obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Now, the statement made here in Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, Peter and John are basically saying, we're going to do what we're going to do, and we're not going to hearken to you. So they're rejecting the authorities. There's a lot going on here that isn't being said. So if this interests you and you want to pull on that thread, go to the show notes. But if not, that's fine too. Just know that as we go through some of these epistles, there are some things that are going on in the Roman Empire that specifically Paul, but others will make comment of, and they'll basically say, hey, we're not here to overthrow empire. We're here to preach Jesus and him crucified and the resurrection, and we're not going to rebel against those powers. And so that's going to be a tension. And as I read Christian history, the tension doesn't go away because the early Christian church will often do things to put them in a position where they're in opposition to governmental power. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So when that is appropriate, we stand up boldly and say, I'm standing with God. Other times, it's more appropriate to be subject to kings, rulers, and magistrates. But in this circumstance, the boldness of Peter caused him to stand up. It's certainly complicated. It I'll is just say very that. complicated. And luckily, we have a Holy Ghost to guide us in every situation. Look at verse 21 of Acts chapter 4. After Peter says, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, the non-disciple. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. They are crippled by what other people think of them. That dominates their thinking. Now let's jump to the end of chapter 4, where the multitude begin to live the law of consecration. So what I want to do is list some attitudes. Here is the attitude of the disciple. Verse 32 of chapter 4, the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own. So the disciples' attitude is, all that I am and all that I have belongs to God. It is a gift from him. 
Therefore, I have no problem giving it to him or using it for his purposes. All that I have, all that I am is not mine. It is God's. Now, verse 32, another way we can live consecration today. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. I think the idea here is I am quick to give my excess to God. I will take what I need and then I will give my surplus to the kingdom. I may not have a surplus of money, but do I have a surplus of time? Maybe I have a talent, and I could give some of my surplus talent to the kingdom. Now, contrast that to the very beginning of the next chapter, the non-disciples' attitude. Acts chapter 5, verse 2, is to keep back part. That's the attitude, is I don't going to give it all. I'm going to keep back part. The attitude of the disciple is all that I have is the Lord's. Now, I'm going to take what I need and give him the surplus. I really like the commentary by Neil A. Maxwell where he talks about this exchange. You know, it's a difficult passage when you read Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Lord and keeping back part and, and what happens with them. Elder Maxwell outlines it as follows. He says, Illustrations involving economic consecration are relevant. When Ananias and Sapphira sold their possessions, they kept back part of the price. And then he he goes on, so many of us cling tenaciously to a particular part, even treating our obsessions like possessions. Thus, whatever else we may have already given, the last portion is the hardest to yield. Granted, partial surrender is still commendable. But it resembles more than faintly the excuse, I gave it the office. We may, for instance, have a specific set of skills which we mistakenly come to think that we somehow own. If we continue to cling to those more than to God, we are flinching in the face of the consecrating first commandment. Since God lends us breath from one moment to another, hyperventilating over these distractions is not recommended. And so however you read Acts chapter 5, I think the main part to me is this idea of complete and total fidelity to the Lord, consecration all the way to the Lord. And I think, you know, when we read this in literature from antiquity, when the hero goes on the journey, the hero has to be all in for it to work. You can't be a hero and go halfway. And so Peter and John and the disciples, we'll see this next week when we get to Stephen. Stephen's all in, and he's okay with whatever happens, happens. I'm focused on the Savior. Yep. Let's do one more on each list from Acts chapter 5. I think there's a fascinating little insight into the non-disciple in verse 28. And we mentioned this in the Savior's last week. Do you remember that moment where Pilate wants to get out of crucifying Christ by putting the blood on them? You now are responsible. I will execute him if you take the responsibility for it. And do you remember what they shouted out? His blood shall be upon us. Now in Acts chapter 5, didn't we straightly command you that you shouldn't teach in his name? Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
how quickly they forgot that they claimed his blood. Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and on our children. But now when they're being held accountable to that, what are they saying? You intend to fill all of Jerusalem with your doctrine that this man's blood is upon us. Now, do you see the attitude of a non-disciple there? They are unwilling to accept the responsibility for their actions. Or they'll make a claim one moment with no intention of actually living it. They said what they said to get him crucified. But now that they're being held accountable to it, no way do they want to live up to that. That's the sign of a non-disciple. Now, the end of chapter 5 gives us a beautiful item to add to the very end of our list of a disciple. Verse 41, after they were beaten and sent away, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. They were willing to and rejoiced in suffering shame for his name. I will follow Jesus no matter what the consequences is the attitude. If the world beats me up for it, I'm ready to live with that. But I am going to follow Jesus. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about Acts chapters 6 through 9. Thanks for listening and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.